0: Okay, um, we uh, we did a few weeks in a row about um, the nature and the experience of, of the cross, um, specifically what the death of Christ is, how it works in us. Um, I, I, I called that series "A Crucified Life." Hopefully, you remember something about that. But uh, then I was out of out of town. Last week, and then this week, I just kind of uh, wanted to pick up pick up back in ephesians it's been a while since we've uh, continued on in Ephesians. We just kind of we do it for a little while and then we I get sidetracked on something and um, but it's always there to come back to, which is kind of nice we're in Ephesians four and uh, I like to just read Ephesians four thirteen through fifteen You can turn there if you want to. This is just a fantastic uh, scripture, it's one I think about all the time, and I, I couldn't say enough about it if I wanted to, but i uh, try to say some things about it this morning. Ephesians 4.13 says, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning, cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into Him who is the Head, even Christ. Um, this is one of those parts of Scripture that I, I revisit all the time in my mind. Um, it's probably one of the clearest purpose statements in the Bible. <clears throat> Just a few sentences, Paul um, summarizes the eternal plan and purpose of God, and that plan is is seen to be centered in the glorification of God through a people who bear the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I. Um, I've been thinking about uh, purpose uh, since June, I guess, since the beginning of June. Just, just uh, had a lot of thoughts about purpose uh, in my head, and, and the question, you know, keeps coming to me: What, what, why did God create? What is His purpose? What was His highest thought for a creation? And there's a multitude of, of man-centered um, views that focus on the perceived benefits that man receives uh, through our involvement with God's purpose and certainly a lot of those are true God certainly has loved us with an unfathomable love and, and, and lavished himself upon us. there's no question about that but at the center of all of that, all of that God has uh, God has a righteous and good and perfect. Desire to have a creation that is filled with His glory. Filled with His glory, as it says, as the waters cover the sea. And the redeemed souls of humanity are that creation. It's not the earth, it's not a new earth, it's not any planet, place, or thing. The glory of God cannot fill a place except in a type and shadowy kind of way, with a cloud or a light. But that's not the substance. That's not the reality. The glory of God cannot fill a place or a city or a mountain. In fact, every place, city, temple, house, and mountain mentioned in Scripture as the dwelling place of God or the habitation of God's glory is representative of the only habitation in which God can abide and can actually fill with His nature, with his glory, with his life, with his person, with his truth. The new creation in which God dwells and is glorified and reigns and rules and teaches and shows himself and conforms and and shines light, it is the corporate souls of the redeemed. We are that temple. We are that city. We are that place. We are that habitation. And this this is where heaven and earth come together, if you can hear what I mean by that. This is not a relationship like the, like the old covenant where the heavens and the earth were separated by a veil, showing that the heavens could not be joined to the earth in that covenant. But the heavens and the earth did come together in the person of Christ, and the souls of man and the life of God came together in the person of Jesus Christ. And there is a new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells. Well, anyway, the, 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 uh, the, the chief end towards which God has steered all things, the, the, you could say the highest thought, the highest thought that God has for you and I is that we would be the very habitation of God, wherein He is glorified. And He's glorified in a very specific way. He's not glorified just by having a habitation. He's not glorified just by redeeming a house or purchasing a people. That's not, there's more to it than that. God is glorified specifically when we all come, when His house, when His people, when His habitation, when we, the redeemed, come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God is glorified in His saints. When we grow up into Him in all things, who is the head. And that's what this verse is talking about. And that reality has been on my mind for, uh, for a number of weeks. And uh, it's just kind of been floating around in my head. Um, I don't know if you're like me. When I get something uh, that the Lord is dealing with me on, it doesn't, almost doesn't matter where I turn in Scripture or what I try to think about. It all kind of, everything kind of just uh, zeros in on, on this one reality. And this, this reality has to do with the purpose of God being the glorification of himself in a people. And no matter what verse I look at in Ephesians, I keep coming back to that. Or, or what, what type and shadow I look at in the Old Covenant, it's there. There it is again. There it is again. It's always like that with me. Until the Lord kind of moves me on to it, some other view of himself and... Um, Anyway, I was thinking about that in, uh, in my time in, in Michigan this past week. Most of you know I was out of town. I, I uh, we have this little family uh, reunion thing we do every summer at my parents' house, and, and one of the things that I did while I was there was I visited my grandmother, <clears throat> who stays at an assisted living uh, facility there near my parents, and she's a really sweet woman. She's very, uh, I've always liked her. She's really nice. She's she's old. She's eighty nine. Um, and her husband, my, my grand, grandfather, passed away a year, uh, I guess maybe even two now, I can't even remember, a year or two ago. And, uh, and as, as is often the case with, with older couples um, that have been married their entire lives, so you get the sense when you talk to her now that she's almost just kind of waiting to join him. And, um, and she doesn't do a whole lot. And part of that is physical limitations, and part of that is her own choice. Uh, but anyway, I, I, brought, uh, I brought Willow, my youngest daughter, with me to see her. And we sat for a while and just chatted. And um, at one point she said to me, Jason, life goes very fast until you're my age. And then it seems to go incredibly slow. And I said, "I said, well, why do you, why do you think that is? And she said, more or less, she said that there's nothing left to do. And uh, everything is pretty much done. And she went on to talk about how you know, everything is either already in the past or because of her, her age is kind of out of reach. And she gave me some examples. And I love my grandmother, and I'm not saying any of this. She's sweet and kind and great, and I don't mean anything about her or about any individual in saying what I'm saying here, but I'm kind of just directing this more at us, more at people, me and you, and, and, and uh, people in general. People who um, who f- seem to follow the leader generation after generation trying to make life into something meaningful. Uh, trying to make their life into something meaningful. And... Um, I... I, I I, when I was talking with her, I just, my mind was, was very much, and this, this always happens to me, I don't know, this always happens to me when I'm around old people or, or around funerals or, or, or people dying. It just, my mind starts to, to think about um, uh, the fact that we live in these bodies for a relatively puny period of time and, and, and how so much of that we seek with all of our energy to make our life worthwhile whatever that means to us, rather than discovering who life is and what that means about purpose. And that's what I was thinking about when I was talking to my grandma. I, I was thinking that in one way or another we're always trying to make to make natural life meaningful. And there's an unlimited number of ways that we try to do that. You, you couldn't count them. Um, It's kind of an automatic thing for me to, to to start thinking about that whenever I'm faced with the brevity of life. I start thinking about the the, the reality of, of of what is always coming to an end, and I and I realize that everyone, in one way or another, seems to labor intensely to make their life meaningful. And yet, if you can if you can hear what I mean by this, time doesn't ever really allow anything in the natural world to be truly meaningful. Because time is always taking things from us. And I suppose it was set up that way intentionally by God. And I'm not trying to depress you or me. I'm just trying to kind of wake up with you a little bit this morning. People give their entire lives to a career, for instance. That that though it pays bills and supports needs, sooner or later it's over, and it's over along with the reputations and the uh, reputation and, and the skills and the relationships that you leave behind with it. And some people make a life about raising children or about uh, reading a lot of books or learning things or visiting places. And I don't need to go down the entire list. Uh, the point I'm trying to make is that time eventually takes it all away from you. We live in a world where nothing is truly possessed inwardly. And everything that is possessed outwardly is only possessed for a time. Just as sure as time lets you experience something, Time is about to take it away from you and leave you with only the memory of a time. And we all just sort of ignore that reality, you know. We just kind of try to pretend it's not happening as we reach over and over again for more temporary experiences and more unpossessable goals. And of course, we, we say things like we're making memories instead of saying we're constantly losing things to time because the former sounds a lot more positive. <laughs> um, but while I was sitting there with my grandma, the thought came to me once again that the only way to redeem time is to use it to gain something eternal. Eternal. That's literally what was going through my head while I was talking with her. The only way to use time wisely is to seek in time something inward and something everlasting. And though this specific verse for today in Ephesians chapter 4 didn't come to my mind at that moment, the basic concept did, the basic reality of that purpose, the reality of what that purpose is and how it works and that reality just kind of stung my heart that day and and kind of ached in me for for uh, several days to come and i know i always people tease me i always say something a bit like this after going on vacation for a week or so and it's kind of become something like a tradition around here <clears throat> closest thing we have to a tradition but i think it's a good thing i think it's i mean i think it's a good thing that that i say it it's definitely good for me it's 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 very easy to lose sight of this. It's, it's very easy to never even come into the seeing of this. It's, it's, it's easy never to gain a view of something more real than the multitude of things that time is constantly taking from us. I remember saying one time that uh, about the only way you can fight against time is with a camera. But that doesn't really capture anything either. I mean, I like pictures, but they're just clearer memories. So, in in the midst of the many and different purposes and ideas and plans of man and, and the multitude of ways that we try to give meaning to our life, in the midst of all of this, there stands this eternal, immovable purpose of God. It's always there. It's always there. It's always right there, hidden from the natural eye, but but ready to be revealed to anyone that's interested in facing it, anyone that wants to actually deal with it. It's going to cost you something to see it. It's going to cost you you. But it's always right there. It's, always, it's like buzzing around you. And it doesn't exactly give more meaning to our life, but it involves the discovery, discovery of His life. And in his life, you find a meaning and purpose for everything. God created you and I, and he gave us 75 years, give or take 20, in hope that we would look for and receive and discover and grow in and learn to abide in and and experience and express the life of God that is imparted to the human soul in the person of Jesus Christ Paul says it like this in Acts seventeen twenty six. he says "And God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. The problem is, or at least, at least one of the main problems that I, I believe is in the church, is that we have imagined a purpose for creation that falls so short and means so little that we're almost driven to look beyond Christ or outside of Christ and into the earth to find something to make our lives meaningful. In other words, we have such a puny and pathetic understanding of the hope of our calling and the unsearchable riches of Christ. We have such a poor and dim concept of what is available to the soul as a partaker of Christ that we look back like Lot's wife. We look back. To find a home and a purpose and a meaning in the realm and life that we have supposedly left behind and been crucified to. I believe it's with that very thing in mind that Jesus tells men and women to sell all that they have, give the money to the poor, and follow him. I I don't believe it that was, Jesus was against possessions. It's just that he knew where these people had built their nest. He knew that people had found a meaning of of life in those things. And he meant to show them that though they professed zeal for him, they really had no intention of finding their meaning in him. So here's the question. The question is, what is your expectation for salvation? In other words, what do you expect to happen with you, in you, to you, now that you are born of God's Spirit? And I'm speaking very specifically of the time prior to the death of your body. Why has God transferred your soul out of the kingdom of darkness and made it to dwell on the son of his love? Why has he done that? But much of the church would have us believe that repentance unto new birth is the eternal plan and purpose of God. God just wants everybody saved. You know, hey, did you hear? Billy got saved. Now that we got him saved, let's just try to get Bobby saved. And that's kind of the mentality, you know, in the body of Christ. Well, what's wrong with that? There's absolutely nothing wrong with new birth. In fact, the greatness and necessity and miracle of new birth is beyond description. But new birth is not God's purpose. You were born again for a purpose. If you told me, if you came up to me and told me that you and your spouse had become pregnant and you were expecting a baby, I would be, depending on who you are, I guess, but I would be happy for you. Uh, I know there's some people here that would not be happy if that happened, so uh, that's why I said that. But generally speaking, if you were trying to have a baby and you came and told me that you, you were pregnant, I would be excited for you and I'd be excited about the baby. But if you then were to tell me that immediately after the excitement and experience of birth, you had no intention of raising the child, but rather were planning on putting it in a dark room along with its imagination, I would rather quickly cease to be excited for you and the baby. In fact, what started out sounding like something to be celebrated would have quickly become a tragedy to be mourned. Why? Because purpose is not found in giving birth to a baby. We give birth to babies so that there is now a human that can grow up into purpose. And I'm speaking in natural terms here, not spiritual. Humans give birth to babies so that we can raise them up into the fullness of natural life and the fullness of their natural potential and reality. I very rarely, if ever, make uh, comments about aspects of our society, but I'll, I'll make an exception right now only, only because of how it parallels um, spiritual reality. We see in the world today, and I suppose this has been going on in different ways in every generation, but we always act like we're the only ones that have seen this happen. But anyway, we see young women getting pregnant because it seems like a neat idea or because it makes them feel mature, or because there's government assistance for single moms and they want to get away from their parents and have a place of their own. Whatever the reason, pregnancy and birth have, with many people, become a means to an end other than raising a child into the fullness of human life and potential. People are having babies without looking beyond the birth. People are having babies without considering the purpose that extends far beyond pregnancy and birth. And only giving themselves, you know, consequently, they only give themselves to their children in as much as their interest and their time allows. And what's the result? What's the result of that? Well, the result is often the, the ruin and corruption of a natural life. It's horrible that we can do that to one another, that humans actually have the ability to ruin another person's life. But, but see, birth is not an end in itself. Birth is a beginning. And with birth comes the potential for growth and maturity and purpose, along with the potential for carelessness and immaturity and stunted growth and, and purposelessness. And I mention all that because of the obvious parallels in spiritual life. New birth is unarguably a miracle. And it's wonderful and it's essential. But new birth is the beginning of a process and a purpose that so many of us happily ignore. We are often content with new birth because that is where our interest in God ends. You know, we'll march and we'll vote against teen pregnancy because we know what often happens to life that is conceived without a view to natural purpose. But we think very little about the potential and purpose for the life of God that resides in the soul. And of course, we take take a stand against abortion. But it seems like we're far less protective of the life and potential that exists as the seed of God in the human soul. All that, all the potential of the uncreated Almighty God living in a human being. Once we're born again, we believe ourselves to be safe from hell and our lives are protected, so we think. And now we can read our books and study doctrines and serve a church as as far as our interest and time allows. Very rarely does man consider God's desire to have a habitation, a land, a city, a temple, all of which amounts to a people in whom he forms the very life of his Son and is thereby glorified. And even more rare is the willingness to allow him to work that purpose in the soul. Because the only way that that happens is the way of the cross. And that's what we've been talking about for the last month or so. But that brings me back to our verse for today. That brings me back to the consideration of God's purpose to have a people who are attaining to the full measure of the stature of Christ a people in whom he is glorified that's God's all consuming purpose and if we will turn our hearts to know the lord as the as the spirit of god will make him known it becomes it becomes what consumes us as well so i just want to say a few things about about these verses specifically here And I won't go too much longer, but Paul says, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When he says until, or till, that doesn't mean that, that he has a literal day or time in mind. I don't believe this is a prophecy that has a past or a future calendar event as its fulfillment. I believe it's a statement of purpose. I believe it's a goal statement. Everything works towards that end. It's the end that God has in mind. That all who are in Him would grow up in Him. That the ones ones in whom Christ dwells would have that same Christ, that very Christ, formed in them unto the full measure. The full measure of Him. That we would constantly journey towards God's expected end. The true land of glory that God saw from the beginning. I believe that's what this is talking about. Because people have asked me, some people have come up to me and said, so Jason, do you think that we're going to be part of that generation that comes to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God? And, and the answer to that is no. I don't believe this is a scripture that describes a natural generation of people in a specific time. I believe it's a scripture that describes the ultimate attention of God for all people in every generation of all time. So then verse verse uh, 14 talks about no longer being tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. A few weeks ago, I said a few things about uh, doctrines. and If I would have thought about it and looked ahead, I would have saved those statements till today. But I won't repeat all that. I just want to say uh, that the reason that I believe Christians are blown to and fro by doctrines is because we still think that knowing true doctrines is the same thing as knowing the truth. It was a long period of my life where I unknowingly believed that very thing and so I was always I was always very concerned that I might be believing something false and always looking to make sure that I was believing the right thing it created a kind of an anxiousness in me uh, that, that maybe I had the wrong idea about something that God was you know God looked at me and said, Oh, and he doesn't get this. Or, you know, that I had been deceived by errant teaching or, or, or just whatever. I, but I realized some years later that the only reason that that fear or thought existed in me was because of a foundational misunderstanding of what the truth is and why God wants us to know it. The truth is not words, and it's not doctrines. The truth can be described by words, but it will never be learned as words. The truth is a person who is known only when his life is, is revealed and experienced in the soul of man. This reality is so foreign to the, to the mind of man. And, and unfortunately, I think it is, is largely foreign to the body of Christ. Just, just that truth is not words. Now I could tell you that, that Jesse, my wife, is not words, and nobody would argue with me. Words can do a good job, or they can do a bad job describing Jesse, but nobody in their right mind would suggest to me that I am married to words. You understand what I'm saying? Words can describe, but truth is not Words. We act like knowing Christ is believing the right words about Him. And we act like God is known through doctrines. And then naturally we then suppose that finding the right doctrines is finding God. And guarding the right doctrines is protecting God. And exposing the right the wrong doctrines is fighting for God. And loving the right doctrines is loving God. And there's something very wrong with all of that. God is not words. God is spirit, and to know him, you must know him in spirit and truth. And that is an encounter of the soul of man with the spirit of God where he lives, as he lives, in you. You must know him where he is and in the way that he relates to you. In simple terms, knowing God is not an awareness of true words. Knowing God is an experience of his eternal spirit as the life that has been given to your soul. The spirit of God, Paul says, takes the deep things of God and reveals them unto you. And you know him as life and spirit and truth. And then the words about him, as you read them, they confirm and they explain your relationship. But it doesn't work the other way around. So it is only when we are not rooted and grounded in the reality of what God has given to the soul in the person of Jesus Christ that we are blown to and fro by doctrines that that attract us Or, or doctrines that frighten us. Not knowing the truth, we are blown by true doctrines and we are blown by false doctrines. You know, we say things like, wow, that, sound, that sounds right. That's better than what I used to believe. And it has seven verses to support it. From now on, I'm going to believe that. Or, ooh, that sounds wrong. I don't think that's in the Bible. It, I, certainly, I've heard my pastor ever talk about that. I'm not going to believe that. Okay, congr- congratulations. You know, so what is what I want to say when someone says, so what? Can you, can you see that both of those scenarios don't really mean anything? you're not supposed to just believe in the truth you're supposed to live in it experience it know it abide in it live by it partake of it participate in it it's supposed to be an encounter with a person not a relationship of words some people ask me so jason do you believe do you believe in this doctrine or do you believe in that doctrine Or do you line up more with this Christian writer, or do you line up more with that Christian writer? And I'm always tempted to say, you know what? It doesn't really matter what I think. But whenever I say that, then they always say, of course it does, because one is the truth and the other is the lie. And that always makes me feel compelled to say, no, actually Christ is the truth and you are the lie. (laughs) And that always goes down like a rat sandwich. But seriously, though, and in one sense, it doesn't really matter what I think about truth. It matters whether truth, as the experience of God's reality in Christ, is becoming the reality that defines my mind, that defines my emotions, that defines my will, that fills my soul. That's where tr- That's why God. That is how God wants you to know the truth. I'm not looking to f- to find true words and establish good theology. Truth is looking to find room in my heart and establish the kingdom of God. Can you hear the difference there? And to the extent that the truth himself reigns in your soul over every high thought, over every imagination that rises up against the knowledge of God, to that extent you are anchored in something much more real than doctrine. And that anchor will keep you from being blown to and fro. On Paul's day, I understand that the historical setting for that verse was false teachers and Judaizers and false apostles coming through town teaching this or that new idea and and, and, and promoting this or that missing piece. And he was warning them about that. But honestly, you know... that is the exact same context that's going on today. There's nothing different. I would bet that we have far more of the exact same situation uh, than Paul saw in his own day. We have more books and conferences and magazines and radio and TV broadcasts, more spiritual ideas and more doctrines than you could shake a stick at. How do you know which one is truth? You don't, as long as they are words. You can't know truth as a doctrine, but you can know doctrines that are true. But the flip side of that is the fact that when true words are presented to ears, and and, and combined with that there is a genuine heart to know the person that the true words are describing, then the Spirit of God can actually do something that brings you to the knowledge of God. Then the Spirit of God is actually liberated when truth is presented to your ears and your, your heart has room to bear the decrease that the truth demands. Then the Spirit of God is there to show you and bring you into the experience and establish in you the person of truth. And this is what the next verse in Ephesians describes. Paul says we are speaking the truth in love, growing up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ. How does speaking the truth to each other cause us to grow up in all things into him? Well, not by learning facts and memorizing scriptures. But rather by presenting to one another the reality of our salvation and giving the Spirit of God something real to work with. That's why I consider uh, small groups, and and even meetings like this, but particularly small groups, um, to be essential to growing up in Christ. It's not because I'm trying to replicate the first century house church movement. It's not because I want us all to get together and, and share our natural struggles and eat brownies. I'm not into it for those reasons. I did a lot of that. It's because when two or three people come together in Christ and begin to share with one another the reality of that union, the reality of life in Him, the reality of sonship and grace and faith, the reality of the cross and the love of God in Christ, when we attempt to speak out from, to speak out from a Spirit-given view of those realities, and hearts are gathered in a room and we're we're sharing what faith sees. We're not sharing the bad day at the office. I mean, you can say something about the bad day at the office. Don't, don't take me too seriously. But, but, you know, so much of small groups in my past have been about sharing the ways that I stink rather than the ways that He is my life. And we come together and we share the reality of, of seeing Him, the reality of, of something that only the Spirit of God reveals. And when you say it and my heart is open, the Spirit shows me. And you speaking the truth, you speaking out from the person of truth, you trying your best to, 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 to put words to something that is, that is so ineffable. It's, 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 you can't totally ever say it, but you, you start to describe it. That's all the Spirit of God needs, because then it, then, then he, he, it's like he, he strikes a big spoon and scoops up the truth that you just spit out and he shoves it into my heart and it is established as a reality, And then I share what I see, and that is established in someone else. And, and we are, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, we are mutually encouraged by the sharing of one another's faith. Mutually encouraged, established. Established in the truth. When two or three people come together in Christ and share the reality of these things and speak out from this view that the Spirit of God has given us, then the Spirit of God is present. As Paul says, He is not far from any of us. He is waiting for us to grope for Him. Why? So that He can do what He does best and loves most. He can reveal the life of God as the person of Christ in you. He can take the things of Christ. Jesus says, I'm going away but the spirit of truth is coming that he may take the things of me and disclose them to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the spirit of God is there to make you know the things that have been freely given to you by God. And so beholding him in that way, we are changed. Together we're changed. We grow up into him in all things who is the head. We are changed into his image from glory to glory. Seeing Him, we see who we are in Him. Whenever Christ, our life is revealed, we are revealed together with Him. We grow in the reality of that glory. Amen. We'll stop with that. Let's just pray. Father, I just thank You again for uh, the time to gather this morning and to look to You to see the truth. I ask You, God, that these these words that I shared would, 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 would be used by your Spirit in, in the same way that I just described, that you would cause them not to enter our minds as ideas, but to reside in our hearts as, as the experience of the person of truth. Father, I ask you to, to work in us the reality of purpose, the glorification of yourself in a people. I ask you to turn our hearts more and more to see what you have done through the cross, that what you have established in the death, and resurrection of Christ would be established in us. It would be the living reality in which we abide and, and live and move and do all things. Father, would you, would you do that among us as a fellowship, Lord, and individually? In Jesus' name. Amen.